boy, God is just so, so merciful. And we see it time and time again in this book. Uh, it's really comforting. And the way God's got a plan and he's working it out. And he's working it out with sinful people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible one by one in order to better understand not only each individual book, but also how they all fit together into a seamless whole. For this series, as you already know, I've been recruiting outside help, people who have spent a lot of time studying and who really know their way around particular books of the Bible. And today I'm excited to welcome to the podcast Dr. Don Taylor. Now, Dr. Taylor is the Provost and Dean of the College at Briarcrest College and Seminary in Cairnport, Saskatchewan. In addition to his administrative roles, which are many, he also teaches a number of courses, including Biblical Hebrew, Wisdom Literature, and Old Testament Narrative, all of which makes him a perfect guy to talk to concerning a number of biblical books. But for today, we're just going to focus on one, which is the Book of Judges. So first, Dr. Taylor, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you. Oh, thank you very much. It's uh, really good to talk to you, uh, Pastor Boyd, and uh, it's always a pleasure to speak to my compatriots in Ontario. I grew up in Southern Ontario myself, and uh, I know the Oakville area really well, and I'm really just grateful you've got a, a scripture kind of church that reads the Bible and studies the Bible, and so uh, for the big shout out to the Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, uh, well done everyone, and uh, welcome to our podcast. Oh, great. Thanks. Well, this is kind of an electronic homecoming for you, coming back to Ontario. We got you virtual. That's great. Nice. Well, why don't we start here? When we come to the book of Judges, Dr. Taylor, where do we find ourselves in this story of Scripture, in the grand meta-narrative, the whole Genesis Revelation? Where do we land? Ah, yes. No, that's a great question. We need to think about really carefully this book and how it does fit into the storyline. Of course, the Israelites people know going back to Exodus, they were delivered out of oppression from Egypt, uh, spent 40 years uh, wandering in the wilderness under Moses' leadership. Uh, eventually, because of the rebellion, of course, they had to um, you know, learn a lot of hard lessons in the wilderness. But eventually the Lord raised up uh, Joshua, who was going to be a military leader and lead a conquest of what was the promised land of Israel. So the people go in to claim their nation that God was giving to them as a gift. But they had to go out and clean out all the Canaanites. The, the uh, idolatrous culture uh, that's, that was in that area was insidious. And uh, it was really a command that the Israelites clean out the Canaanites, either... Uh, through warfare or pushing them out. We know from reading the book of Joshua that uh, while they were very successful, they really didn't take the whole land. They got maybe about 70% of it, the central areas they took, but they left a lot of Canaanites uh, in their midst. And uh, in this period now, they settle in their tribal land. So, of course, the, the 12 tribes were, were assigned. Uh, there were two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh of Joseph. They got their own uh, parcels of land. And then the uh, the 10 others, the Levites, of course, got cities, 48 cities around the nation. But they were they were set out in their parcels of tribal lands. And so they really were for this period called the Judges. And it's probably around 300 years. There, there's controversy on each end as to what the dates are exactly, as to when the Exodus happened and when they settled. But it's about a 300-year period. And during this period, they really are led by their tribal leaders. They have not established a firm nation yet. They don't have a, a king. They don't have a central government or authority. They really are just acting as a group of 12 tribes. And, uh, and, and we're going to see that this whole time period is marked by uh, some periods of some good things happening. There are some positive stories, but largely really the way the nation got mixed up into idolatry 
and fell into apostasy, falling away from the Lord, until eventually we, we're going to find at the end, we're going to have a great story in the book of Ruth, which is people fail to recognize. It's a great uh, bit of a love story, but a story of faithfulness and godliness and piety. And it happens during this period of the judges centered in Bethlehem. And it's going to lead us, of course, into uh, the book of First Samuel, where the Israelites finally under a good judge, Samuel, is going to get to a place where they're going to have a king. Their first king in Saul, second one, uh, the best king, King David. And so it's in that time period as a nation is going from uh, tribal, uh, trying to cooperate and work tribally, but it really is a time where they're they're unstable and uh, spiritually very unstable as well. Hmm. That's excellent. Good summary. So we are moving from a leader like Moses or Joshua, conquering leader in the case of Joshua, and we're between the time when we come to the king. And so we have these judges, and I probably should have let off of this question, but what is a judge? We hear judge today, and we have one picture in our mind. That's probably not what is being described in scripture, right? Yeah, very good. It's an excellent question. The huge, the judge or leader is another, I've seen that translation. It, it does carry the nature of judge, but it very much is a military role with a little bit of a civic leader role as well. In the book of Judges, the, it's their military leadership that gets highlighted, and usually it's when they have a big deliverance story, and we'll talk through each one of them a little bit. But they have a big deliverance, which sort of gives them their fame. And then they do a little bit of civil leadership where they bring peace. But there's not much described about their daily kind of interaction and leadership. But it really is that there are these charismatic military leaders. And when I say charismatic, they had this ability to, to draw people together, to follow them into battle. And, uh, and, and of course, they're, they're a strange and eclectic group of characters uh, and it really is a very odd time. And even the leaders, the leaders, their circumstances, their weapons, what they, it's all very unusual and odd. Great. So now you've situated us in the history of uh, the biblical times and in the storyline of scripture. I'm wondering now if focusing in on that book as a whole, maybe you could give us an aerial view of the whole book of Judges. What are, what's it about? Where does it take us? What ground does it cover? Maybe an outline of the book to get us, uh, give us some handles to grapple with the whole thing. Yeah, very good. It has a really amazing structure, and I'll, I'll talk this out a little bit, but let me just give you a couple of pieces to begin with to think about. Uh, people talk about having called a frame narrative. It's a little bit like the book of Job in that it starts the book with a, a couple of chapters. It just sort of do the setup. Here's the situation, and then it starts telling stories, and it's going to these cycles of stories, really hero stories, and we'll describe what we think about hero stories, but it'll go through these various stories uh, starting from Othniel and running to Sam, uh, um, Samson. And then at the very end, there's sort of another kind of an epilogue, a series of random stories that tell you what the times are like and the outcome of this period. So you're, you're following through with these stories, you know, what these heroes did, but then here's the outcome and we're going to see the outcome is really bad. And so it, it really is in this frame narrative, but the center section is really going to highlight uh, these uh, seven key People call them major judges, seven major judges, though, uh, honestly, Abimelech, we'll talk about him briefly. He's actually not a judge. He's not called a judge. He's going to be called a king, actually, over two cities. Uh, Sh uh, Shechem and Beth Milo are going to name him as their king. Uh, he's going to be evil, uh, but he fits the pattern really well. And so, uh, but that's what the, the, the book looks like. It's got a frame on each end and then these, these hero stories in the middle. Um, I always warn my students, too, that this book is an 18-plus book. Uh, it's got all kinds of violence, 
mm-hmm. uh, sexual abuse and betrayal and idolatry and misuse of power. Uh, this is this is not a. Uh, it's really hard to teach in, in uh, you know Sunday school. And, and in fact, I think sometimes there's. I often come across my students who come and they all think that Samson is an awesome leader and they want to replicate him. Mm-hmm. And it's not till I actually work them through the story of Samson. They go, actually, he's a bad model for a leader uh, and, and a failure in, in, in many ways. And so so it, it, I'm often kind of uh, uh, killing their favorite biblical hero. Uh, but uh, but uh, let me just walk you through just a little bit of yeah, the please. cycle. Uh, there's a cycle that takes place all through these hero stories. And you'll see it time and time again. It's, it's repeated uh, every time uh, almost perfectly. It starts with the nation. That, uh, that they start getting mixed up in idolatry. That's the first stage. They start looking at the, the Canaanite practices. And chapter one is going to describe how Baalism and Asherah, that's the most popular god and goddess in, the, in this time, the Canaanites, they, they get mixed up in this. And it doesn't go into a lot of detail what's happening there. If you, if you walk through the, the, the next number of Bible books, you start picking up more detail in the Kings, that Baal was a storm god, that he was thought to bring rain and fertility uh, that he lived in the clouds and brought rain. And of course, it's an agricultural community. It's almost all small farms. And of course, what, what do the farmers want? They want rain and they want, they want fertility in, the, in their animals, their sheep, their herds. And, uh, and Asherah, the female goddess, and how this worked was, was thought if you worship them and, and there's all kinds of lascivious sexual um, um, practices and so on, you'll, you'll detect as you read through, there's prostitutes and shrines in the high places. And it was thought that if people went there and had, had sex at the high places, that it spurred on the gods to bring on more fertility in the land. And so this is the kind of, you know, crude and lascivious thinking that's going on that, that the Israelites start getting mixed up in. They get drawn into that culture. So you had, uh, mentioned, yeah, you had mentioned in the beginning that in the book of Joshua, they are given the promised land and they're told to get rid of the pagan nations that are there by several different means. Now you're saying that the Israelites are being wrapped up in, if not outright idolatry, then syncretism and, and all sorts of stuff. Is there a connection there between their failure to drive out and obey the Lord in full and then what they're experiencing now in the book of Judges? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the uh, the first chapter starts describing how the people failed to clear out the land of the people. They were, they were supposed to go and keep clearing the land out because you know, the Lord kind of said to them, you know, if you don't get these idolaters out of your land, they're they're going to overtake you because you're going to fall into their sinful practices, and, and and it would have been a humbling message for them. This goes all the way back to Moses and Deuteronomy, and and uh, they just didn't do it. They compromised immediately, and even sometimes they did uh, oppress some people. They would just put them into forced labor and leave them in the land, or uh, they captured a king, uh, Adonai Bezek, in chapter one, and and they're supposed to put him to death as a a foreign king, but they didn't, they, they cut off his thumbs and toes and, and, and let him live, you know? So they were compromising and being disobedient to what they were supposed to be doing. And by leaving the Canaanites in the land, they just started falling into their, their practices and their thinking. And we'll see that in a couple spots, how perilous this is going to be for them. And it, and it really messes them up as a nation, their leaders getting mixed up in this, this, this idolatry, they start getting pulled into, uh, obviously angers the Lord. You know, they're disobeying. God has given them this land as a gift. He's been gracious to them. And uh, they just get mixed up. It's it's like adultery, uh, you know, going over to the other gods and angers God. And God responds as he promised back in Deuteronomy that he'd raise up oppressors against them if they wouldn't 
be faithful. And so that's what happens. Outside nations start pushing in on Israel, uh, the neighbors around them. Um, and as a result, eventually the people under their oppression uh, eventually get it and say, okay, we're going to have a prayer time and cry out to the Lord for help now. And eventually when they're hurt bad enough and they start crying out, the Lord in every single occasion responded to their prayer by raising up a judge, a deliverer for them. Every single time. Uh, this is one of the great messages of the book is just how God just constantly uh, comes back and gives them another chance and another chance. Uh, time and time again, even though they've been so faithless, uh, God responds by raising up a judge. And we'll, we'll talk about each of those characters. Uh, they have these unique battles and unique ways in which they win victory over their enemies. And then there's always a period of peace afterwards um, that the people are then faithfully following the Lord. And there's uh, apparently the judge leading well. There's not much description of the time of peace. Um, but uh, that's the pattern. And that follows with every single judge. They're to see that cycle. And as you read this, you're supposed to sense this cycle that despite the people's failure, God keeps coming back, remembering his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and blessing his people, Israel, despite their failure, remarkable failure. Uh, every time God just comes back. So it's a great, it's a great piece of the story, the structure. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I can see that cycle. I remember, do you remember the uh, walk through the Bible series that for mm -hmm. kids and they had the pictures? I still remember as a kid, the picture for judges was a judge like we would picture with the robes and the powdered wig and he was sitting on top of a motorcycle and you're supposed to think <laughs> judges cycles was the key yes. word and this idea of cycles of sin that they fall out of favor with God. They cry out, God sends them a judge, delivers them peace, and then they fall back into sin and away around and around we go. So yeah, great, uh, great uh, structure to the book. Yeah, I, I tell my students too, just a personal application, right? Um, it, this is a big picture cycle for the nation, but you know, in our own lives, right? Uh, we know too that when we we start to drift from the Lord a little bit, we, there's consequences, you know, in our in our lives, whatever they might be. It, it, the, we just start falling away and feeling it. And and what do we need to do? We need to turn around, and pray, and repent. And uh, uh, we can wait for consequences to come, or we can just repent and, and get our lives back in order and in prayer of course, is the way to repentance and, and the way to get back in favor with God again. And so even our personal lives, there's a story here that we need to be thinking about this cycle and and why wait out for consequences? Let's just quickly get back to the Lord and get on track. Right on. Well, why don't we uh, rip through some of these judges that you have yeah. uh, to, to highlight for us? Yes, let me do that. Um, Let me just tell you one thing, uh, and I'll because I'll pay attention as I go. There's another fascinating structure going on, and I'll try and, it's hard to do without a blackboard, but I'll try and do this for you uh, there's a way in which the, is, the Israel biblical writers used to like to tell stories. And you'll hear it's called a chiastic structure, in which they like to start in the beginning and then lead to a center section and then back out the same way they came. And this structure follows for these judges, and you'll see why it fits together so well. Uh, it, you'll see it in the, the Tower of Babel story in Genesis, the flood story. You'll see in some of the prophets and the Psalms, this, this chiastic structure in it, this structure uh, follows nicely through these but it starts with essentially a good judge in Othniel and eventually ends in a bad judge in in Samson so there's the, there's your parallel beginning and end so Othniel who has a good wife we find Axa uh, daughter of Caleb a good wife in the very first chapter is going to find she's got some lands for her husband and she finds some upper springs she asks of her of her father and, and she's increasing uh, the, the domain of her of her husband Othniel Othniel chapter three, uh, short story for Othniel. He's the best judge, but we have very little in his story. Uh, he comes from a good tribe from Judah. 
The Spirit of God comes upon him. He delivers the nation, and they have a long 40-year period of peace after him. Uh, he comes. He's the right man for the right job, comes from a good family with a good wife. Of course, the opposite at the very end, we're going to have uh, Samson, uh, who's got a bad wife. I think we can clearly say a woman, Delilah, the woman of the night, uh, who's actually going to be harming him, uh, working against him, and eventually leading to his death. So there's a real parallel going on between the, the best judge and the worst judge at the end. Um, this, the second judge, Othniel, is really interesting. He's a Benjamite. There's also a strange thing. The judges are going to work geographically from the south to the north. So again, you've got this sort of bias from the good judge going to the worst judge. Uh, Benjamite uh, Ehide, he was well known for being this left-handed assassin. So um, an interesting, the tribe, Benjamin, uh, means a son of my right hand. And so he's a left-handed judge from this tribe. So there's an irony, uh, uh, and it, this is all through here. And he's going to be an assassin. He's, they're going to describe the story how he's going to go and, and kill this fat king, Eglon. And it's this almost a comedy story as he... He, he's got this devar, this thing for him. He's got a, a sword for him. He, he's pretending he's got a message for him. But he's actually got a sword for him. And he's going to slay the king and then rally the people and lead them into deliverance. So it's almost a comedy story. Interesting character again. Going to lead to the third judge. Another interesting, unusual choice. Uh, Deborah, who's actually serving as a faithful judge at this point in time. We told she is holding court, perhaps in the pattern of Moses. We know back from... Uh, uh, Exodus in how we, he uh, ruled on cases for the nation, the hard cases. And Deborah was doing this, and she's regarded, uh, well-regarded as serving as a judge. But there's actually in this, not saying bad about Deborah, but there's actually a, an indictment about men in this story. Her husband, we don't know who, where, where he is, Lipidoth. He doesn't show up anywhere. Uh, he's, she's got a military general and a guy named Barak. And uh, she says, Barak, okay, it's time to go and, and, uh, and, and fight against our enemies here. And, and Barak says, well, I'm not going to go unless you go. And, and, you know, it's like he's sort of acting like a woman here, the, the fearful one. And strange it is, this is great, again, this twist in these stories are so well told. She says, well, the glory of this battle is going to go to a woman then. And as the, the battle plays out, you expect it's going to be Deborah that's actually going to get the glory, but it's not. There's kind of a, a change in the narrative as Sisera, the enemy general, is on the fleeing, and uh, she gets called into the tent of jail. Uh, again, her husband's missing too. Where is he at? Uh, and she invites uh, Sisera into her tent. Uh, this would have been a really forbidden thing, but she she hides him and gives him milk and puts him to sleep and eventually uh, assassinates him with a tent peg. Again, an unusual weapon. It's a it's a book of unusual weapons. And uh, and, and of course, then uh, it's Jael who's going to be this blessed among women. And uh, Deborah's got some beautiful poetry, kind of recounting this in the middle section. And again, it's it's a bit of an indictment of where where are the men uh, leading the nation? And Deborah stepped up and was doing a, a fabulous job. She she seems like a really good judge, but again, it's it's what what are the men doing to to bring leadership to the nation? And that indictment probably would have been much more clear to the original audience to this. They mm -hmm. they read this and they would have that would have hit them right in the face. Whereas today today we're a little desensitized to that. Uh, there's an, an egalitarian stream running through our mm -hmm. culture, and so we might not even notice that. Whereas yeah. at that time, that would have hit them square between the eyes. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and the the next judge, Gideon, and there's a long section about Gideon, and he's really a transitional figure. He's the guy, you know, that they've been good judges, but now it's kind of transitioning. Um, uh, transitioning to the bad judges. And Gideon's that character is really tricky too. And it's a, and it, he's one of these tricky guys too about when you come to interpret judges because you know people want to go to him and go, oh, 
uh, he's a good guy. Let's use his as, a, as an example for how we should live. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you got to question some of the things he did. He, he did lots of really questionable things. And he's sort of a mixture of good and bad. He's pretty fearful, we find, really from the get-go. Uh, and uh, he keeps asking the Lord for direction. He puts out a fleece and so on. And the Lord keeps, resp- here's what's fascinating. He's been told exactly what he needs to do, but he keeps asking God for confirmation and badgering God. Should I do this? Should I do this? And God still responds. You know, and I just find this amazing how God's working with the weakness of these leaders to try and get the right outcome. And again, it's a great, uh, you know, just showing God's wisdom, working with human beings who are weak. Uh, I I think of myself all the time as to the Lord just keeps working with me despite my weakness. And uh, and he counters that by the work through his spirit. And we'll talk about the spirit in a few minutes, too. And he, he answers this Gideon who's who's weak in his faith and. And uh, God keeps nursing him along, even to when they eventually lead in the battle. He he has him go down and hear a dream that affirms that he's going to win the battle. So then he proceeds and they win the battle. But again, he sort he again turns mysteriously bad in the end. There, there's a, he's chasing down a couple of Midianite kings, and it seems like yeah, he's out there doing the right thing. But then when he gets to the end of it, you find out that well, it was really just personal vengeance because these two guys had murdered some of his brothers, and so uh, a really peculiar ending to the story. And then we find after the battle, they're sort of saying, hey, Gideon, won't you be our king? So it's interesting. The people are thinking about kingship. Wrong guy, but they're they're starting to think about what a king might do for them. And Gideon says, well, no, the the Lord will be your king. Now, people think, oh, that's a great answer. But it's because he didn't really want the responsibility of being king. He wants the plunder. He asked for the gold that came off the camels. He wants the money. He wants the cash. Um, And then he's going to name his son, the next guy, Abimelech. Abimelech, the name means my father is king. So you, what does that tell you about Gideon, what he thought of himself? Not too subtle. Not yeah. too subtle. So, so he wanted he wanted the leadership in a way, but he didn't want the responsibility, which is which is a really telling uh, story too, right? And I think all of us in leadership too just know, you know what? Uh, if you've been assigned to something, you're doing something in the church, you're a leader, you've got to step up personally and take responsibility um, and, uh, and it takes courage and the spirit of God working in you, but you've got to take that. Uh, you just don't want positions without the responsibility. It's a little lesson there. Uh, his son, Abimelech's a really bad guy. He's going to go and uh, murder his, his 70 brothers. Uh, and, and he's going to lead out in warfare, uh, named king of two cities. Uh, interesting connection here, it, it, his demise. And again, there's payback in this book too. There's payback stories again, it's part of the action of this book. So he's going to be pressing in against a town. He gets too close to a tower and a woman takes an upper millstone, a rock and drops it, hits him in the head, wounds him, mortally wounds him. And he, and he asks a, uh, one of his swordsmen to kill him because he doesn't want people to say that a woman killed him. Um, so he dies, uh, but recognize it's because a woman crushed his head. And it's the same language uh, previously uh, in the story of Jael killing Sisera. Remember a tent peg crushing his head killed by so a military leader killed by a woman and here it happens again and again it just lines up with that chiastic structure perfectly and here you've got another um you know payback death here of an israel evil israelite getting killed by a woman and so there are these little subtle statements too that say hey this is all wrong well these biblical these biblical authors are no dummies They, they, they are very skilled uh, with the pen, are they not? Yeah, there's two things I was going to mention about that. That's good timing, uh, Josiah, is that there's two things about these stories. The biblical narrators, they tell their stories very compact. They don't add lots of frilly stories. 
you know, it was a Thursday afternoon. The weather was nice and I was feeling good. They, they don't do that. They're, they're straight and tight to the point of what they're telling, which means that because it's so tight, there's a lot of meaning in everything that's going on. You got to pay attention to every detail. And, and beyond that, too, they often don't tell you only if rarely do they say this was bad or this was good. They leave it for you as the reader to go, hey, what's going on here? And, and lots of times, there, and, and in Judges, there's a lot of places where you're going, wait, was this a good thing or is this a bad thing? I'm not quite sure. And you, you're left, they leave you to reflect and think about the whole so that you can make judgments about the individual one. So, yeah, those those biblical authors are really keen. And uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the end we get there. Uh, the, the next one, uh, fascinating story, Jathan. I usually spend a little bit of time here with my students because you've got this guy who's an outcast from his family and he's a called up. Um, you know, into service to lead the nation, a really unusual figure. Again, he's a guy you don't want in your family, but you're going to call him to your military leader. Shows you how dysfunctional we're. He was the son of a prostitute, but he's got, he's kind of a Robin Hood figure with a bunch of guys out in the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan. And he's going to, he, he's well known for, he makes this rash vow. He's going into battle and he says to the Lord, Lord, if you give me victory here, I'll sacrifice to you whatever comes running out of my house. It's a really strange vow. What was he thinking? Was a cow going to come running out to him? We, we don't know what he's thinking exactly. But he, he goes into battle and the Lord gives him victory. So now coming back from his victory, we find, and there's, there's paintings about this, that he's coming back to his house and his daughter, his only daughter, uh, comes running out to him with tambourine, ta- a tambourine singing to her father. And, and he says, oh, my daughter, you've made me the, you know, the worst of men now because of a vow I've made. And, and there's some real wavering over what happens, although it just says in the text that, he did to her as he said he would. Uh, she'd gone off to mourn with fam- with uh, friends out in the out in the, the hill country uh, because of her, her virginity, and and people wonder did you know did he really sacrifice his daughter? But the scriptures gently suggest that's what happened. And, and here's what's laying in the background: a couple of crazy things going on. We we're told in the beginning of all this that the spirit of the Lord came upon Japheth, and, and we'll see this throughout Judges. The spirit of the Lord keeps coming upon people. And and it it seems like the Spirit's working quite differently in this era. And and we recognize God works differently at times. And the Spirit came upon people for military success, but it didn't necessarily change their moral character or give them specific wisdom. They they were still making mistakes. And we'll see again with Samson, too. Um, The Spirit of God comes upon him power, but his moral life was out of control. And so uh, here again, even though the Spirit of God uh, had worked with him to, to bring him victory, it didn't change his thinking. And, and, and you have to remember, I put this in the backdrop that, that my students often forget. We were told several times in the narratives before that these Ammonites, and particularly Ammonites, Moabites, exactly the people he's fighting against, were practicing child sacrifice. And this was the thing that the Lord hated them for, that, that he wanted them wiped out for, was because of this child sacrifice, and God hated it. And, and it shows you the influence, that cultural influence upon Japheth. It seems that he fell to this, that so he would sacrifice his daughter. And the real pernicious tragedy here is the fact that he's killing his only daughter, which means he's cutting off his own family line. And I say to my students, I go, just think about it for a minute if you think this out. So let's say he made this vow, and and yeah, you're expected to keep your vow, but what would be the worst that would happen? What if he said, God, I made a big mistake here. I can't do it. Can't kill my daughter. It's wrong. I'll take whatever punishment upon myself. You know, the worst thing could happen that God would put him to death. And isn't that what we think of heroes? that you're going to sacrifice yourself and, and a man for his own daughter. But instead he chose to follow through with his vow, which just tells you something about the thinking of the time and how idolatry 
It just slipped into their mind and, and led them in, down this perilous path. And it's slipping down towards Samson, right? It's keeps yes. on. It's that degradation. It's interesting you talk about the Holy Spirit. I know that there's some mystery in the Old Testament as far as the Holy Spirit coming upon, coming upon. And this side of Pentecost, we know that the Holy Spirit lives within us and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet, as you spoke there, the Holy Spirit coming upon these judges, and yet they still prove their depravity in spite of that. I mean, I can relate to that as as a believer with the Holy Spirit indwelling me, there are still times that I err, right? And so I can see that, that, not a parallel necessarily, but the Holy Spirit's involvement in my life does not make me a robot that he controls. I still have the free will to disobey and dishonor the Lord. And it seems like in Judges, they were doing very much the same. Yeah, absolutely right. I've thought about this a lot, actually, just you know, from a biblical studies point of view. And, you know, when you think about, of course, post-Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit now indwells. The language is quite different in the New Testament. And, and his ministry, I think, is quite different. Because remember, Jesus talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John, is that he's going he's gonna to remind us of Jesus' teaching. And so now, again, post-resurrection you know, Jesus, we've got all the teaching of our, our wise teacher, Jesus, that the Holy Spirit reminds us of. So I think that the Spirit's work is quite heightened in a way specifically because we have uh, the Gospels and the New Testament uh, that we have, and, and as the Scriptures reside in our hearts, uh, I think we've been quickened in a way by the Spirit in a unique way that in kind of the legalistic uh, framework of the ancients, uh, our ancient forefathers in the faith, they didn't have it the way we have it. And so we, we're, we're in a better time, I want to say, and uh, definitely the Spirit worked differently. Yeah, we don't know what it's like to try to follow the Lord without the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And yeah. how hard that would be, how different that would be. I want to be uh, slow to judge the judges, you know, in that case. Yeah. I want to be very cautious there. Well, let's keep yeah. going and, and finish off this uh, this summary. <laughs> yeah, Samson, I'll, I'll just treat him because uh, we, we know Samson kind of the most in our stories. He was, again, who was set aside to be a Nazarite from his birth. One of the unique characters, Samuel, the next judge, is going to be that way as well. But it's really clear from the get-go, he does not really care about his Nazarite calling. Uh, he's handling dead bodies. Uh, he's using, you know, the, the jaw of a, of a donkey as a weapon. Uh, he's not supposed to be handling those. He's fermented uh, drink. He's eating honey and passing it on to his parents from the carcass of a, of a dead lion. You know, he just doesn't care about his calling at all. In fact, there's really no signs of spirituality in him at all. There's one time where he thinks he's dying of thirst, and, he, and it's the one time he prays, and the Lord, and again, the Lord answers him. But remarkably, again, and there's a really interesting theological twist in his story because in the beginning, uh, we're told in chapter 14, there's just this little illusion that the narrator gives us. It's fascinating. Uh, we're told, and I'll just give you a, a verse here. It's chapter 14. Uh, it's right after he says to his parents, get this woman as my wife, uh, a Philistine woman. Uh, it says in verse 3, 14, 3, but, but his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, among all our people, that you must uh, go to take a wife uh, from the uncircumcised Philistines? But, but Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And it says, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord that he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Like this Samson going after this Philistine woman, which was going to lead to a real intense hatred with the Philistines uh, as this wedding plays out, this crazy wedding story. Um, it's, going to, it's going to lead to animosity. And it's going, to, it's going to then get this Samson fighting against Philistines. And I think, again, it's a weird motivation, right? But I think the Lord's working with this guy, Samson, 
who's driven by the lust of his eyes. Everywhere he goes, he sees something and, and he goes after it, whether it's the woman or it's the, the carcass with the honey. He sees it and then he goes after it. And so he's driven by the lust of his eyes, which is connected, of course, to what the Philistines are going to gouge his eyes out at the end. So there's these ironies within the story. But he doesn't care about his vow. And the Lord realized, listen, I got to get this guy into action fighting Philistines. And so he uses this sort of baser instinct to fight against Philistines. But the real tragedy is this guy had such great potential with his power. But again, he never led anybody. He didn't rally the Israelites to form up battles and start fighting against Philistines. He didn't do it. It was just personal vengeance all along. When he tried to capture him, he'd, he'd again grab a strange weapon and kill a bunch of Philistines. And, and, uh, and as an individual uh, assassin, he did quite good. Uh, but we know as, as he gets you know, led into the lust of the flesh, chasing after these women, um, that he really was wasting his time and energy on these women of the night who took advantage of him for money in the end. Uh, and he, again, he's captured. There's some great, uh, I love, there's some great uh, artists that painted this scene of Samson asleep in the lap of Delilah. There's several of them out there. One of them I show my students because there's one where he's, he's kind of an Ar Arnold Schwarzenegger, all buffed up uh, in Delilah's lap. But there's another one where he's a, a pudgy, flabby guy, really trying to get the point that he, he wasn't this strong on his own. There really was the Lord who's given him this miraculous strength to subdue these people. And yet, despite the fact the Lord is working with him, still Samson didn't really respond. It's not until, again, the second time he prays when they've got him performing in the Philistine temple that he's given his power back because his hair just started to grow back. And the Lord one answers his prayer one last time to, to pull down the temple upon himself and kill himself and kill a bunch of Philistines in that last sort of sacrificial act. So, it's a powerful story, but it's one of just all oh, lost potential that with this with this character who had such strength, that if he had led Israel properly, they really could have you know, taken the lands and, and been established as a great nation. But many feel that he is really just typical of the Israelites who at this point in time were distracted by the foreign gods, were chasing after the lust of their eyes. Remember that this idolatry, uh, this idolatrous worship in the land was very much about personal prosperity, about wealth, having bigger crops and more money. And so they were distracted by chasing after these things, and they were not faithful to the Lord. Even though the Lord was still trying to work through these imperfect judges, uh, the nation really never got it together. Finally, there's, there's a bunch of epilogue stories, and I'll just say they just typify how bad things, these are like the headlines. Uh, these, are, these are headline stories about bad things had gotten, and, and Interesting reading, it led to civil war. Thousands and thousands of Israelites died in the civil war during this era. And just because of ridiculous thinking that was going on amongst the, uh, the people of the time, it just shows how bad they'd gotten. There's a statement that's repeated four times. It, it keeps saying that Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Four times, chapter 17 to 21, four times repeats. And the idea that the narrator is trying to get across is that if there was a good godly king like David, that these things would not have happened, including a story that happened right in the middle of Israel in Benjamin, where a group of men encircled a house and banged on the door, wanting to have sex with the, the male traveler who was inside, um, who eventually throws his concubine out to the crowd. Um, and it's a story that's exactly the same as Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. And it's saying that and God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. And here, the same thing is happening right in the middle of downtown Israel. 
It's the same story. That's how bad Israel had gotten as a nation. That is, they became unfaithful, got mixed up in idolatry. They were totally apostate, and they were set up for destruction. And they, they really should have, at this point in time, received the Lord's punishment. But the, the writer keeps saying, listen, a good and godly king would not have let these things happen and would change the whole course of the nation. And so there really is an apologetic happening here to suggest that a good king uh, protects and guides a nation. And it really, when it talks about good kingship, and we really think these stories were collected during David's time, uh, probably by Samuel, maybe Nathan Gad, the prophet. They're probably gathering these stories and, and putting the final form together. And, and they're, But they're thinking to the king that God described back to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The godly king, who's not going to go after wealth and money and women, but rather he's going to be following the scriptures. He's going to get a copy of the scriptures from the priest. He's going to copy out his own copy. He's going to read the scriptures daily so he can lead with wisdom. In fact, the king is supposed to be a model Bible reader. Um, and, and from that, uh, and it's the same thing given, of course, to Joshua, his, his commandment to, to read the scriptures daily. Uh, it's Psalm chapter one, right? It's, it's the scriptures as they guide our thinking, as they guide us wisely, we're going to have a good outcome. Uh, and, and this is the point of these terrible stories in Judges. We're to point to a day when we'd really follow a good king. And of course, Jesus is the Messiah king who's going to lead us well. And uh, but but at this time period, it's looking forward to the godly kings of Israel who would set the nation up for success. Hmm. Well, that was a fire hose. Sorry. Oh, yeah. No, that's OK. <laughs> so when we come to the book of Judges like this and you've done a good job summarizing, it is chaos. It is bloodshed and disobedience and uh, murder and revenge and all of that depravity on display. Now, for some of us, when we come to church, we come to church to worship God and we sing about how God loves and how he's so good and holy. And then we open, the preacher says, now turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. Like, hang on a second. We hear stories like this or we come to this book in our Bible reading plan and all of a sudden we're struck with such a contrast between the God we serve and what he's like and what we're reading in his book. How do we reconcile those two things? Maybe it's maybe it's easy to reconcile. How does a book like this point to the goodness of God and not sully his name? Oh, yeah, very good. And, and you definitely have to be a sensitive reader to see that it's a very human book. It's not hiding. Uh, and, and we all know we, we go to church and we see all the good things are good friends, but we can pick up the papers and read about murder and sexual abuse in our day and age, too, in our cities. We don't like to talk about it. And, and we blush to talk about those things. But I, I, in one way, I love that the scriptures are honest and just say, Hey, this is where things go. And, and, and I know people, and, and we all will, people have gone down a pathway of sin, which is crime and leads to a really depraved life. And, and, and I, I tell my young people I work with, I say, you know, we're all only four or five really bad decisions away from being uh, in terrible shape in our lives. You know, uh, and, and we've, no, we've probably all known people. Somebody who has an adulterous affair or gets mixed up in drugs or crime and their life goes downhill very quickly. Um, and so, so there is a low road and this book of judges describes the low road. And I think it's the warning. It's the, if you read Proverbs and Proverbs is going to be telling young men and women to choose between a pathway, you can choose the pathway of the, the godly, the wise, or you can choose the pathway of the foolish and the fool. And guess what? The pathway of the fool is where Israel is going in the book of judges. And so it's playing out 
the stories of what happens when you get mixed up into idolatry and your life gets into a mess. And it's, and it's corrupt thinking uh, so often time too. It's not just, uh, it's just making stupid choices and bad decisions that, that just lead you down this pathway where obviously the, a faithful life following God. And I, and I think actually the book of Ruth is actually, there's a trilogy because there's three stories about Bethlehem in the epilogue. There's two of them in, in judges. And then the last one is, and it's a good story. The book of Ruth is, is also a bookend in that the book of Ruth is in this period of the judges. And it shows how uh, a godly Boaz marries uh, a godly woman in Ruth, who's actually a Moabite. She's a woman of noble character. It's repeated. It's the same woman. Um, it, it's the same language of the Proverbs 31 woman. And in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the book of Ruth actually comes after the book of Proverbs. And she's sort of the living representation of the, the woman of noble character. And by her faithful and loyal servants uh, and servanthood, uh, she demonstrates a positive uh, view of piety and godliness in this very time period of the judges. And so I think there is actually sort of a positive story. And then, of course, Samuel, who's going to be the, the first judge in the book of 1 Samuel, is actually an excellent judge. He, he's one of the best Bible characters. He doesn't get the credit he deserves because he serves as a, a prophet and a priest and a judge. He's a military leader. He does it all, actually, and is a really remarkable figure. So there is sort of a positive story. But definitely the book of Judges is shaped to show how depravity is the outcome of being unfaithful and falling away from the Lord. And you mentioned a couple of times that it is remarkable in spite of repeated disobedience, God continues to answer their prayer. They call out to help, he comes through. They call out to help, he comes through. He is faithful, faithful, faithful in spite of their unfaithfulness, as you've talked about. So even in the face of all that darkness, there's still this brilliant light that, um, like you said, Ruth uh, pictures this faithfulness, a faithful light shining in the midst of all this darkness, but the Lord even more so responding to his, his people in need. Yeah, and there's just a remarkable sense of, number one, grace, that this was a people that they'd gotten as bad as the Canaanites and deserved to be wiped out, actually. You know, they deserved serious judgment if you, if you, you know, if you measure what's happening in the Old Testament. But God doesn't. He carries on faithfully with his covenant promises, going to lead them into kingship and, a, and eventually a great nation united under David. So God's just, you know, determined in his own faithful character to watch out for his, his nation and be faithful to his word. And then even in the small stories, how he just keeps answering prayer, even, even for people who are obviously off track. And, and that's just so encouraging for me. Uh, you know, we all know we, we often pray and we repent because we're off track or we sin, we make mistakes. But to know that God answers our prayers, even when we're off track and, and, and trying to, to get back in line with him and, and repenting of our sins. Boy, God is just so, so merciful. And we see it time and time again in this book. Uh, it's really comforting. And the way God's got a plan and he's working it out and he's working it out with sinful people. He doesn't give up on the nation of Israel, despite uh, the failure of these judges. He just keeps doggedly working with them to accomplish his purposes. And, and I don't think it's any different in the church today that, you know, God's working with uh, sinners saved by grace, trying to serve his kingdom work. And uh, God just uh, is committed to us and loves us and keeps working with us despite our failures. And uh, so, I, you know, I find great encouragement still in seeing how God is just uh, so good. Uh, to his people and and faithful to his word. Boy, Dr. Taylor, there's so many threads I want to pull in there, but for the sake of time, <laughs> yeah. I got two more questions for you as we wrap sure. up. And this this next one might be really difficult in, in light of all that you have 
just told us about the book, but if you are going to distill the book of Judges into its main thrust, uh, to say it another way, why is this book important? Why would God preserve this for us for today? Yeah, one of the big themes that's in here too, and there's lots of sort of big themes that you can just keep developing, but I also see it as a real warning about idolatry and where an idolatrous culture can lead you as well. So the the thinking of the time, it led Israel astray in so many uh, bad ways. But I, I think it's a warning about our own culture, right? We have to be paying attention to what's happening. We can't we can't step out of culture. We're always in a culture, um, and there's things we're going to pick up, but there's things we need to watch out for. And, and being attentive to those things is really important to us. And, and, and it's not easy, right? So many times it's just, you know, pulling the threads apart and figure out this is okay, that's not okay. You know, we all know we're in a technological world and we have to figure out how or what we use social media wise or whatever. And it's so tricky and it, it just requires a lot of wisdom and insight and discernment to figure out what's okay and what's not. And, it, and it's it's hard, but there's a, there's a, there's a real danger. And, and Judges points out, what happens if you just get carried away with the ideas of your time and the idolatries of our time? And they're not radically different. I have my students write a, write a little paper on this to think about uh, the kinds of idolatry, what's happening in our human hearts. And for the Israelites during this period, they wanted they wanted money and there was lust attached to their worship. It was very eclectic. Um, there's a lot of things happening. It, it wouldn't be met very different from what you'd see on our bookshelves at chapters nowadays. Um, it used to be a big Christian section. Now it's a small Christian section and there's a lot of other things happening there. And um, I love to go talk to the people who are over shopping over there because they're, they're very eclectic and spiritual people. And I, I, of course, I want to tell them I'm all about Jesus and they think that's cool too. And we have some great conversations, but there's real dangers over there and there's real d- spiritual dangers in our culture. And, and as Christians, we need to just be attentive and wise and uh, thinking about our culture and, and avoid the, uh, the very serious pitfalls that are there and figuring out what those are exactly. And uh, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in Judges for us to see. see the real danger. It really is a, a book of warning at its highest level, isn't it, for us? Yes. And this might be overlapping this question with uh, some of the things you've talked about already, but I'm wondering in the, your years of studying this book, and you've picked it apart at the Hebrew level, and you've shown us a little bit of that today, but I'm wondering personally, how has God used this particular book of the Bible uh, in your life to, mm-hmm. as... Second Timothy says to teach, reprove, correct, train in righteousness. How has he used this to shape you in godliness and bring you toward Christ likeness? Yeah, I'll just cite just a couple of little stories, and there's there's many of them I could go to, but just a couple that I that have really affected me at, at personally at points. You know, I've thought even just a little about the Gideon story and go, try to get inside his head a little bit of what he's going on. And and he's this character that he's got fears. I think like all of us, he's got fears, and there's some real fears going on around him. But he's also got this 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 personal narrative going on. You know, he, he's got personal vengeance concerning his brothers. He's worried about money. He wants cash in the end. And, and there's these personal motives that are going alongside his role as a judge. And, and I just think about that. And, and I don't, don't think I line up in any particular way. But to realize that even as serving in ministry, we also have personal, personal motives going on that we need to be assessing and, and judging for ourselves and laying them before the Lord. And, uh, and so that's one of those places where I just uh, made me really think about um, my own, you know, thoughts and intentions of my heart and laying them before the Lord. And his story is one of those places. Uh, another one is just Japheth, you know, this vow he makes in a way he gets trapped by his words. And it's another one of those things that, um, and again, it's coming out of wisdom and Proverbs, being careful with our words. 
and 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 I, I have to th- as a as a leader myself, I have to worry about being trapped by my words. I want to be integrous and and do exactly what I say I'm going to do, and and that means too not over promising, um, being careful what you you say you will do and won't do, and and uh, so I think there's even in these big sort of national kinds of stories, there's some personal stories uh, that that just make you think about your own life and measure your own self, how you're doing. And, and uh, we're, none of us are perfect in any of these things. And uh, so we have to keep going back to them. And that's how the scriptures work in our, in our lives, right? Is they help us to reflect upon what's going on in our own hearts, think deep, deeply and carefully about these issues and, and lay them before the Lord and, and be honest about them. And, and so even in the midst of this, a big sort of tragic, um, messy, chaotic story, there's, there are personal lessons um, really in every chapter. That's great. It reminds me of what James says about the word being a mirror. We look into it. We, we see what ourselves and woe to the man who forgets what he looks like and, and walks yeah. away. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Dr. Taylor. I want to thank you so much for giving us your time and your expertise in this way. And we may need to have you back in the future to help us with another book or two in this series. But thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Pastor. And uh, bless all your people who are studying the word. I think this is fantastic that you're doing this uh, podcast ministry. And uh, for people sinking their uh, minds and hearts into these stories, it, it should only be a blessing to you. And I, I'm really appreciate that people are investing their time into this. Great. Thanks again. God bless. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.